0: Let's have a seat and have a Bible open, if you would, to Revelation chapter 19. Uh, If you need a Bible, we can put one in your hands. Just raise your hand, Pastor Andy, will get you a Bible. We've got plenty of extras. It'd be good if you're looking at the Scripture together. Anybody need one? Yes, we need one here. Thanks. Revelation chapter 19. Yeah, so the reason we're in Revelation chapter 19 is... uh, Anybody else need a word of God to look at? All right, thanks Ray. Uh, We... Brief overview. um, We've been in a Bible study through the book of Genesis. And we got up to and through chapter 19, where the Lord judged the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and a few others. And we sort of springboarded off of that into a mini-series related to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, Because Jesus referred to uh, Lot who lived in Sodom. And he said, as it was in the days of Lot, so it will be prior to my second coming. Jesus said that when he was alive here in his first coming. So we launched into this little mini-series about the second coming of Jesus Christ. No top, no subject could be more interesting and uh, than the issues related to what the world will be like before he comes. So this is my last third installment on this subject. The previous two, we talked about Jesus and the Jews. And the fact that when Jesus comes again at his second coming, he's going to reveal himself to the whole world, but also specifically to the Jew. And... We went through Daniel chapter 9, those famous four verses, 24, 25, 26, 27. And uh, the book of Revelation is decidedly Jewish in flavor because the seven years of tribulation that we see in Revelation have a lot to do with God gathering his Jewish people unto himself to bring them to faith. And ultimately they will... See him and believe in him. to look upon him whom they pierced, the prophet says, Zechariah 12.10. And they'll worship Jesus. So Jesus and the Jews, his faithfulness to that people group because of a covenant that he made with them. And he never breaks his promise. The second installment of this little mini series was Jesus and the church. And the fact that the Lord does that amazing thing of a rapture, a raising of the saints, dead or alive. It's like mind blowing, right? Some of us, when the Lord comes for his church, those of us who are alive are going to be translated off of this earth while we're alive. And we're going to instantaneously be given Bodies that are appropriate for heaven. These bodies need to be changed. Uh, uh, What is it? 1 Corinthians 15. We shall all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. When I first started going to church, by the way, at uh, Calvary Chapel in the Finger Lakes region, uh, they had that verse over their nursery. We shall all be changed. Okay. Some of you have changed diapers, you understand that. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, so, no study of the second coming of Jesus would be complete without actually looking at the second coming of Jesus, which is why we're here in Revelation chapter 19. But before I get into Revelation 19 and we look at the verses of the Lord's literal reappearing to earth... I want to take a few minutes and give you an overview of the book of Revelation. I often hear comments like, I don't read it, it's too confusing, can't understand it, Um, it's weird, too much symbolism, it's fearful, terrible things happen, I don't like it. That's all that, I admit, we have to admit. But um, let me just give you a few of the details surrounding Revelation. Uh, The author is John. He refers to himself five times in the book. So when you see that, immediately you go, which John is that? Well, there's not too many to choose from. It certainly isn't John the Baptist. And it's not very likely that it's John Mark, who was Barnabas' nephew and wrote the Gospel of Mark. Mark, not John. So, church fathers and conclusive throughout church history, it was the Apostle John. He wrote this. Uh, He wrote it somewhere in the 90s, prior to 100 AD. And the reason we can say that is because he said in chapter 1 of Revelation verse 9, what's he say here, let me just quickly turn there. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos or Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So uh, John the apostle wrote it. We believe that he wrote it in the late nineties, just before the end end of the first century Because he said, I'm a companion in your tribulation. Persecution had broken out because of the emperor Domitian in Rome. And we say that it was probably a later authorship because Paul planted those churches that are referred to in Revelation 2 and 3, Ephesus and Smyrna and Sardis and so on. He planted those in the mid-50s. So the likelihood of persecution breaking out on those churches in such a short time That is, if John wrote it in the 60s or 70s, it's not so likely. And uh, also, men who knew John the Apostle, a guy named Polycarp, right? Just, you love that name in and of itself, right? He actually was discipled by John the Apostle. And he said that John wrote this at that time. So, late 90s. By the way, what's that tell you about John when you read the Gospels? If he wrote this in the 90s and Jesus died in the 30s, John was a young man. That's like 60 years later. He was a a young person with faith in Jesus Christ. Just a teenager perhaps. So John wrote it. Wrote it in the 90s. He wrote it from Patmos. It tells us in chapter 1 verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So we know from the New Testament that the Lord's Day was, came to be known as Sunday. It was the day that the church met. Uh, this book is inspired by God. This is divine inspiration, and it couldn't be more clear than in the very first verse where it says, "...the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to Him to show to His servants." Things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. Later in chapter 1, Jesus appears to John and he said, write these things. This was, John basically became a secretary. And so it's divinely inspired. So friends, don't be afraid of the book of Revelation. All right? This is inspired as much as every other of the 65 books of the Bible. Pop quiz, pop quiz. Anybody can answer. What's the theme of the book of Revelation? Yeah, thank you, Esper. (laughs) (laughs) The revelation of Jesus Christ is the opening words. That's the theme. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look, there's lots of really interesting stuff, no doubt, right? 666, six, six, the beast, the Antichrist, all this crazy stuff, right? Don't get, dis, don't, get, don't get distracted. It's the second coming that is the feature. It's the culmination of human history as Jesus comes again. All right, that's the theme of this book and it's inspired by God. Uh, let me talk to you just briefly about Symbolism. Because uh, we need to maybe solve this mystery of symbolism. uh, Because there's a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation. So there's a few ways to deal with it. Um, Actually, turn to chapter 1. Let's let's look at it here. Um, I'll show you the first way to deal with symbolism is, does the book of Revelation explain itself are symbols explained, and sometimes they are. Here in chapter one, verse thirteen, or verse twelve and thirteen, then I, that is John, turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, and he goes on and describes what Jesus looked like. Now you get down to verse twenty. Jesus is now talking to John, and he said, "The mystery, or the hidden." Knowledge of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the lampstands are the seven churches. Well, thank you, Jesus. All right? So the symbol of a menorah, of a lampstand, in Revelation, is representing a church. Jesus walks among his church. Turn to chapter 5, verse 8. I'll show you another example, where a symbol is defined for us. Chapter 5, verse 8, when Jesus had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense. Well, what's that? He tells us they are the prayers of the saints. So the symbol of of a bowl with burning incense is explained to us as something that is symbolic or represents the prayers of the saints. So when you're dealing with symbolism in the book of Revelation, does the book define it itself? If it doesn't, then look for comparative words. Words like like uh, or as. Go back to chapter 1 when John saw Jesus. Verse 13, one like the son of man, clothed with a garment to the feet, girded with the chest, about the chest with a golden band. Now, it doesn't say like a golden band. So when Jesus comes, he's going to have some sort of golden thing around his chest. It says his head and hair were white like wool. So it's a comparative word. And you can all picture in your mind now, a woolly little lamb or something. And it's like Jesus's hair was white. And you can look at me and you can go, oh, that's white, right? So it's, his hair is gonna be whiter. It's because it says white as snow, right? And his eyes like a flame of fire. So those are comparative words that tell us what John is seeing. It's real. Jesus's eyes are gonna be burning, right? Not bloodshot, but they're going to be fiery. <laughs> right? So he's using those comparative words. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. His voice is the sound of many waters. And he had the seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. What's that? Anybody? Anybody? The Word. The Word of God. Other portions of the Bible tell us Sometimes what symbols mean, the, the double-edged sword, the word of God, Hebrews 4.12, Ephesians 6, All right? So look for meaning within the book, use your comparative words, and if you don't have either one of those, and things that are getting to be described and it's weird, it's probably what it is. And you go, okay, well, there's. I know, I've read Revelation. You're going, I've, I read about those creatures who have hair like a woman and teeth like a lion and a tail like a scorpion, and it's weird. And it doesn't say like or as. Then take it for what it says. It's the safest thing to do in that case, all right? So that's the symbolism uh, of Revelation. Uh, I want to talk to you just briefly about interpretation, the way the book has been interpreted throughout church history, basically four ways. It's actually quite important to know this. Um, For a while, many people in the church thought that John was writing about something that had already happened, and particularly the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. The Roman army besieged the city of Jerusalem And for three years, uh, they brought them to their knees, basically, the Jews. And then they broke down the walls and destroyed the city and so on and so on. So a lot of people say, well, John's writing about that as something that has happened. Um, We know that's not the case because Jesus didn't come back again at the end of that uh, siege in AD 70 the other way people approach the book is they say, well, it's a panoramic view of church history. So John is just sort of writing from uh, what's actually happening today. Uh, and they see it covering everything from the time of the apostles all the way to the present. And the symbolism refers to anything from the invasion of Rome to the rise of the Roman Catholic Church to the emergence of Islam, and so on, and so on, and so on, all right? But none of that really fits some of the specifics and details that we have in the book. Another way of approaching the book is that it's totally allegorical, that it's nothing more than it's kind of a poetic story of good versus evil. Well, it is that, but it's more than that. So the way that I approach it, is that it's prophecy. It's telling the future. It's prophetic. That's the way Jesus introduces it to John. So it's futuristic. And that approach insists that the events of chapters 6 to 22 are yet future, and that those chapters literally and symbolically depict actual people and places and events that are yet to appear on the world scene, describes the events surrounding the second coming of Jesus, the millennial kingdom or the kingdom of a thousand years, the final judgment and the eternal state. And for what it's worth, only the futuristic perspective does justice to the revelation, the claims that Revelation makes. Okay? Look, it's a tough book. I understand. So I want to recommend, I don't always do this, but I want to recommend John Wolverd's commentary on the book of Revelation. John Wolverd. I like him. He's very honest and he's very humble. He provides the different perspectives that are out there in addressing various scriptures throughout this particular book of Revelation. And he's not super dogmatic, and he's honest enough to say, I think, or from what we can tell. So his introduction, a lot of what I've said to you came from his introduction, and it really sets you out on a good path as you enter into a study of the book of Revelation. A couple more things. Some notable features about this book there's 404 verses, Warren Wiersbe pointed out. Of those 404, 278 make reference to the Old Testament. That's 70% of this New Testament book is, has a direct reference to an Old Testament prophecy. Okay? So, the, the backbone, the structure, the framework, the scaffolding, if you will, of the book of Revelation really comes out of Daniel and Ezekiel, and Zechariah primarily. And there's some Jeremiah, there's some Isaiah sprinkled in there, right? So that's pretty important. The word lamb is referred to 27 times in Revelation, Only twice in the whole rest of the New Testament. Sorry, three times in the whole rest of the New Testament. Which is also, by the way, it was John who referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1.29, which is sort of further evidence that John is the author of this book. The word throne is used 39 times, 12 times in the entire rest of the New Testament. Doesn't that seem appropriate? It's like Jesus comes as a king, right? King of kings, Lord of lords. So naturally, we have the word throne used 39 times, 13 times in verse chapter 4 alone, as we're taken up into heaven and we see a throne, right? The number seven is used 54 times in this book, 34 times in the rest of the New Testament. What's significant about number seven, church? It's the number of completion, right? The number of perfection. Doesn't that seem appropriate for the book of Revelation? It's the completion of human history. It's the the final thing. The word crown is used 11 times. Eight times, well, I won't get into the weeds on that. (laughs) But the word crown is used 11 times in this book. Angels are referred to 94 times in the book of Revelation. More than any other New Testament book in itself, the book of Luke comes in second place with 26 references to angels. Revelation, 94 times. A lot of angelic activity. The word beast is used 30 times. The word dragon is used 12 times. The word beast is a very particular word, therion in the Greek, and it refers to a venomous snake or wild animal, and it's descriptive of cruelty, brutal, savage, ferocious. And we're going to see, well, we won't see today, but when you read Revelation chapter 13 particularly, we're introduced to a beast. Then he's got a sidekick, who's another one called a beast. But that's that word, okay? Very important to realize, they're not friendly. They are ferocious, savage, evil, murderous, liars, thieves. They hate people. But you don't know that. And the world doesn't know that. They're deceived by this one. We'll talk about that in just a moment. All right? So that's just an overview. Oh, one more thing. Chapter 1, verse 19. With your Bibles open, just look at chapter 1, verse 19. Jesus said to John, chapter 1, verse 19, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. So Jesus wants John to write three things. My friends, that verse gives you an outline of the book, right? The things that John has seen are contained here in chapter 1. He heard a loud voice. He turned around. He saw the Lord, lampstands, angels, stars, all that going on. He goes, write that down. That's what he's seen. The things that are, are the churches of chapters 2 and 3. And then the things that happen after the church age, all right, or the things that happen after, or take place after this, and go over to chapter 4, verse 1, and we can see here that John wrote chapter 1, which is the things that he had seen, he wrote the things which are the seven churches, and then he writes in chapter 4, after these, after these things, after these things, that is, chapters one through three, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. After this. Okay. So chapter one, verse 19 is uh, a key verse that sort of gives the outline of the book of Revelation. And when I bring in my understanding that we studied in in Daniel 9, 27. Remember there was 70 weeks? Guys remember that? And a week was seven years. There was 70 sets of seven years. And we learned from Daniel 9 that 69 of those 70 or seven sets, seven years rather, have been fulfilled. There's one final seven-year period, 70th week, Daniel's 70th week, which is yet to be fulfilled, which we believe fits into Revelations chapter, Revelation 6 through 19, okay? So the tribulation period of time uh, is seven years long. All right, thank you. So I recommend the book to you. I wanted to just go through some of the overview, dealing with some of the symbolism, the approach, the author and such. But let's come now to chapter 19. Uh, the actual second coming of Jesus Christ. Chapter 19, verse 1. After these things, I heard a loud voice. Or what sounded like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. Not in earth, but in heaven. It's a lot of people and no doubt angels and they're saying hallelujah. There's four hallelujahs in these few verses. It's the only time the word is used in the New Testament. What's hallelujah mean? Anybody? Praise God, exactly. Right? Praise God, why? Salvation and glory and honor and power to our God. So this great multitude in heaven is saying, hallelujah, praise God, salvation, the ultimate salvation has come, or is coming. Now this is before Jesus actually, the heavens open and He appears. So this is, it's fascinating actually, because it says after these things, they say hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power to our God, because, verse 2, for true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. It's fascinating that these, these people in heaven have an awareness of stuff that's happened on earth that's interesting isn't it not because it's you know we get glimpses of do my parents who are in heaven today do they my dad Tom and Barb Hathorn. do they have knowledge of me today of what's going on in this earth I used to say I hope not I don't want to get to heaven and have to put up with all this I want to be out of this right and we're in God's glory, but here they seem to have an knowledge that, that God has just brought judgment down upon this city and the system that is called Babylon. So back up, it says after these things. So let's look briefly in chapter 18, verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down, and shall not be found anymore. The sound of harpists, musicians, flautists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore, nor craftsmen of any craft shall be found in you anymore. The sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore, and the voice of the bridegroom or bride shall not be heard in you anymore, for your merchants were the great men of the earth. For by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. Interesting. All the nations were deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints. And so after these things, this great hallelujah chorus breaks out in heaven. And they're just, so there's an awareness that God has judged the city and its system, which we'll talk about in a moment. And there seems to be an awareness that Jesus is getting ready to appear. Verse 3, again they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. He's put down the ultimate evil. Verse 4, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne throne, saying, amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude is the sound of many waters, and as the sound of many thunderings, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God, almighty or omnipotent, reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give glory, give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen it is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb, And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. There is inspiration right there. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges. And makes war. Isn't it interesting? Verse 11. I saw heaven opened. I think it was John Macarthur that said in chapter 4, it said heaven opened to let John in. And here in chapter 19, it says heaven opened to let Jesus out. Not that he has to be let out, but it was kind of an interesting observation. It says his eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. Not like many crowns. By the way, that word crowns means it's a, it's a word. It's diadem. Right? It's a word that means royalty and, and authority. He had a name written that no one knew except he himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Another evidence of John the Apostle. He's the only one who refers to Jesus as the Word of God. John 1.1, 14. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's us, brothers and sisters. That's the saints. The saints are the ones who are clothed in fine linen, right? So we're going to be following him, riding on horses. Is this weird or what? Jesus is coming down out of the universe, back to this planet, with a whole army of people like the Calvary is coming, riding on horses. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God. You may eat the flesh of kings, captains, mighty men, horses, and those who sit on them, of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Verse 19, And I saw the beast. There he is. The kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image these two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh a gruesome scene and a glorious scene all at the same time no doubt that is the second coming of jesus christ prophetic yet future That is going to literally physically happen in our intensely scientific, technological, advanced age. He's going to come down out of heaven on a horse. And there's no laser beam and there's no microscope or telescope that's going to figure that one out. It's just going to happen. And he's coming as the king. Is Jesus your king today? We all know Christmas is coming, right? It's the heartwarming season of Jesus being born from Mary. And one of the things that I think ought to strike us from this text is that that same Jesus is alive in heaven today, sitting on the throne in all of His glory and power. And it just gives me a whole lot of love and respect and devotion and adoration for the fact that He came all the way down to be a little tiny embryo and to be born among men do you see what he left brothers and sisters? Do you see his love and his humility in coming to die for our sin? Man, that ought to inspire some sense of worship for Jesus. You know another interesting thing that strikes me from all this is that he comes just he just comes as he is. There's no exquisitely designed royal carriage and there's no, you know, palace guard, and he's not coming to some sprawling estate. He's coming down to the planet Earth just as he is. And he's gonna dismount that horse and he's gonna stand on the Mount of Olives outside of Jerusalem and he's gonna rule and he's gonna take over. He's coming to take over, and that's a good thing. It also reveals to me that Jesus. One of the other things I noticed here is that he's leading and we're following. And when he gets here, he's coming to a world that's at war. It's called the Battle of Armageddon. It's really the fulfillment of what is prophesied in chapter 16 where the Antichrist or the beast assembles people from around the world and they enter into Israel in the Jezreel Valley And World War III is in full swing when Jesus comes down. And we're following. Now, I like that. Because I want to learn from Jesus as I live today that when I'm facing spiritual warfare, I want Him leading the way. Amen? I want to stand behind Him and let Him defend me. And Paul said, look... I'm not ignorant of the devil's devices, okay? You stand. Put on the full armor of God and stand. Don't run. Don't turn your back. Everything is it's for our head, our chest. We got the shield, the sword, our legs, our belt of truth. It's all provided for us through faith in Christ. He's our defender. We can worship and praise Him for that. I just love the fact that He comes in power. Just as He is. As He is. Not as He will be. He is. He took Peter, James, and John up unto the mountain. He was transfigured before them. John saw that as a teenager on the mount of transfiguration. But uh, even that, when Jesus sort of lifted the the veil and and revealed his, His majesty and His true divine glory... Even that was somewhat veiled because when John saw him in chapter one, he fell at his feet. It's like you can't, you can, we can't handle the Lord comes in great power, in resurrection power, power that can save me from my bad habits, from my bad habits of the things that I think about myself and other people in this world. The Lord has power to change all that. And by the way, I want to remind you, I want to remind you, Daniel's 70th week is seven years long. Hell comes from heaven during those period of seven years. Okay? Horrible things happen. A third of the world's population Dies for various reasons. But do you see God's patience and His mercy? Because things happen that are only explainable by there's got to be something going on outside of us. As we're seeing, the constellations are changing, the moon and the sun is giving up a portion of its light. Only God can control those things. It's mercy. It's mercy. You know something else that's mentioned in Revelation more than any other book? Peoples, kindreds, tongues, and tribes. It's it's language that describes all men. And it tells me that the gospel of the Lamb of God saves all the way to the end. And when people come to faith, when they see the world falling apart around them, and they turn to Jesus Christ for their own forgiveness and repentance, and faith, they're saved, just like you and me, just like Abraham, who believed, and righteousness was imputed to him. It changes life, the power of the gospel, accomplished by Jesus Christ outside of Jerusalem, back in AD 30, covers all men all time, in any place, in any, any situation, whatever your life story is, you bring it to the cross, And the Lord forgives. And he creates a new person inside of us. New hope. Worship Jesus for his gospel, for his humility, for the fact that he's a king, for that he comes just as he is. So not much more you can say. There's probably a lot that can be said, but it's it's pretty interesting, the actual second coming of Jesus Christ. I want to give a warning here, and that's where we'll spend the next few minutes. Because I intentionally read for you chapter 18, verse 23, where it says Babylon, this great city and this system, all the nations were deceived. They were deceived. And then I intentionally read for you in verses 19 and 20 about the beast and the false prophet where it said in verse 20 by which he deceived those who received the mark now i want to talk to you about that for a moment this is really important because back in matthew when jesus was prophesying of the things that would happen prior to his coming he said this jesus said this, and he he says this as a warning to all of us. He said, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there. Now this is Jesus talking, Matthew 24, 23. If anyone says to you at this time when the great tribulation is in full swing, look, here's the Christ, or there. Do not believe it. For false Christ, plural, false prophets, plural, will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive if possible even the elect now the elect is a reference to people who have been become christians that's shocking to me jesus said there will arise men who will declare themselves to be jesus or great prophets. And people in the church will look at those men and they'll go, that might be it. That actually might be Jesus. Now, it's not possible that they'll be deceived, but they're going to actually, it seems to indicate some serious consideration of what's being declared by these liars. But if you flip that around, if you're not a Christian... It's not going to go well. You're probably going to get deceived. We're talking about the ultimate. We're talking about the devil who will empower a man, the beast, and he will empower another man, a false prophet. And so I ask myself, and I want to just say to you, what is the devil going to do that is so tricky. Let me tell you this. He's not going to do anything that he's not already doing. He's going to appeal to your flesh. He's going to appeal to your pride. And he's going to appeal to the things that the world can give. One thing that was striking to me in thinking about this was that the first time Jesus mentioned the cross to his disciples in Matthew 16 right? Life's kind of breezing along. The 12, they're thinking, here's the king. He's here. He's going to set up his kingdom. We're going to be his right-hand man and life's going to be amazing. And then Jesus threw a monkey wrench into the whole program. He goes, oh, by the way, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to rise again. What do you mean crucified? When Peter heard that, you all know, he said he took Jesus by the says he took a hold of him. He said, it's, that's not true. That's not going to happen. Jesus turned around and he said, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So know this, the devil hates Jesus and he hates the cross. So how will the Christians not be deceived? by realizing that he's appealing to something other than what was done by Jesus on the cross. His appeal, this whole system, Babylon, as I said to you, is a city. I don't know what the city is. I don't know where it is. It might already exist. Maybe it'll be rebuilt. But there will be a city called Babylon, or be rethought of as Babylon, Babylon. And there will be a system, as you all know, right? The system has three modes of, three parts to this system. One of them is political, one of them is financial, and one of them is spiritual, right? That's what we read in chapter 18. They were deceived through the sorcery of this false prostitute, this great prostitute or harlot as she's referred to. Right, which seems to indicate a deeply religious appeal to that in men. So the devil appeals to the spiritual, to the sacred. Now hear me out, brothers and sisters. He does it through signs and wonders. Be careful of signs and wonders movements within the Christian church. The focus is on the wrong thing. It's unbalanced. It's unbalanced. I know a number of people in this community, good brothers, good sisters. They're unbalanced. Their whole focus is on, let's raise people from the dead. Let's see the power of the Holy Spirit moving. I'm into that. I love that. I want to see that happen. But if that's, your, if that's what you're leading with, be careful. The devil will do the same thing. Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? I don't even know you. I never knew you. Just beware. What's coming may already be happening today. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'll put a few verses on the scripture here to validate where I'm getting this information. It says 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 9. Paul said, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Interesting. That's Paul in the context there speaking about the Antichrist. So he appeals to the sacred. Another another thing that he loves to do, and we all understand this, that he appeals to works-based Religion, works based. It's not faith-based and it's grace alone. It's based on what I am gonna do. And I find my validity, my identity in God in what I do through my attendance or whatever. And I point to First Timothy chapter four for that. Paul said the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. So we're going to be really religious by not doing a lot of things. And Paul said, that's going to happen in the last days. And demonic spirits are going to be promoting that kind of thing. Now, we love doing stuff. We love taking credit for what we... This is the part of... This is the struggle we have in the Christian life, Right? by faith alone, through grace alone. So the devil's gonna appear to the spiritual. He's also going to appeal to the secular through political and financial means. Uh, Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse four. Look at this verse. Says the Antichrist, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshiped. So that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. The appeal is to, your, to how great you are. Has God said, this was the devil's first words in the garden, you will be like God's. The appeal is to self-promotion or self-love. This is his anti-gospel. That's what he stands for. That's what he lives for. And he wants to get as many into that as he can. There's no team in I. <laughs> he also makes an appeal to money. You read Revelation 18. I mean, there's a lot. There's a, it seems that there is a distribution of wealth. And in spite of all the horrific stuff that happens, there's also, it seems like people are doing pretty well. There's an appeal to wealth, 2 Timothy 3. I'll just read this to you. It says, in the last days, this is Paul again, inspired, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Now listen to this. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money in the last days, lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Second Timothy three, two to five, lovers of self, lovers of money. My friends, if there's somebody preaching a prosperity gospel, it is a false gospel. God does not want you rich. Except rich in faith and in love and devotion to Him. And money just doesn't matter. In fact, there's a whole lot of problems that come with a love for money. It's a root of all kinds of evil. Prosperity gospel is evil. Evil. And it spreads around this world, particularly in the South American continent. It's very popular in Africa, unfortunately. It seems, it's heretical. Some of it goes on here in our town. It's demonic. So the devil's going to preach. Get rich, man. Lovers of money. And all the good stuff that comes with it. That's just a warning. I just wanted to give you that warning. It says, the whole world gets deceived. And Jesus said it. The deception's going to be so strong. I just don't want you to be deceived. I have a responsibility to give you the Word of God as it is written so that you can take that with you and you can chew on it yourself. And I encourage you to read Matthew 24 for yourselves and some of these scriptures in Timothy that I've pointed out in 2 Thessalonians, right? So what do we do while we wait? You cherish the old rugged cross. You deny yourself. You confess your sin. You tell others. We witness. It's what we do, right? It's what we do. What do we do with this knowledge? God gave the book of Revelation to the churches. Right? To the churches. The things that I've shown you. We have a responsibility to read and to be knowledgeable and, and faithful and watchful. That's what we're here for, brothers and sisters. So thank you, Lord. I'll say it again because I have to read, study, memorize, meditate, obey. James said, if you read and don't obey, you deceive yourselves. (laughs) Read and obey. One of the first and primary ways the Lord called us to obey is to love one another. This is my commandment, that you forgive just as I have forgiven you. And that will sharpen our discernment. So that when somebody starts making bold claims or you start hearing about emphasis on signs and wonder, it's like, oh, okay, well, careful. I'm not saying they're not my brother, my my sister. I'm just saying, careful. Make Jesus the main thing. You start hearing prosperity, you start feeling that appeal. Look, I like money. I like what money can do. We all do. right? But I'm not going to let it possess me. It can come and go. I've had it and I've had it go. Mostly it goes. <laughs> Ruined Judas. Some of it started sticking to his fingers. He was a treasurer. He started paying the bills. Here's the bill. Here's a little for Judas. Jesus said, I know what you're up to, and he didn't stop him. He deceived himself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, your mind, your wallet. (laughs) I've added to the word, sorry. (laughs) Let's stand and pray. Lord, thank you for the chance to gather again. It's amazing, Lord. King of kings. King of kings. I can't help but think of those wise men. Came from the east and they bowed before. They said, where's the one born king of the Jews? Not will be, he is. You were born a king. You're always the king. We surrender you, King Jesus, to you. We submit ourselves to your authority, to your power, to your right to rule our lives for your glory. We willfully and joyfully surrender. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.